Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our reading this morning can be found on page 715 of the Church Bibles. Uh, We're continuing our series of studies from the book of Isaiah, uh, reading from chapter 31, verse 1, through to chapter 32, verse 8. That's page 715, and starting to read chapter 31. Verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Yet he too is wise and can bring disaster. He does not take back his words. He will rise up against the house of the wicked, against those who help evildoers. But the Egyptians are men and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, he who helps will stumble. He who is helped will fall. Both will perish together. This is what the Lord says to me. As a lion growls, a great lion over his prey, and though a whole band of shepherds is called together against him, he is not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. So the Lord Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights. Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and will rescue it. Return to him, you have so greatly revolted against, O Israelites. For in that day, every one of you will reject the idols of silver and gold your sinful hands have made. Assyria will fall by a sword that is not of man. A sword not of mortals will devour them. They will flee before the sword, and their young men will be put to forced labor. Their stronghold will fall because of terror. At sight, of the ba- at sight of the battle standard, their commanders will panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, whose furnace is in Jerusalem. See, a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. Each man will be like a shelter from the wind, and a refuge from the storm. Like streams of water in the desert, and the shadow of a great rock, in a thirsty land. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the rash will know and understand, and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected, for the fool speaks folly, his mind is busy with evil. He practices ungodliness and spreads error concerning the Lord. The hungry he leaves empty, and from the thirsty he withholds water. The scoundrel's methods are wicked. He makes up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. But the nobleman makes noble plans, and by noble deeds he stands." Ian, thank you very much. Uh, Let's uh, pray again as we turn now to look at this passage that Ian's just read for us. 
Our Father, we've uh, asked you to reign in us. We've sung of what a great God you are, the one who holds the oceans in his hands. And we pray that we might grasp just how great you are and indeed how sensible it is then to have you as our Lord reigning over all parts of our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I would imagine that uh, most of us, if not all of us, uh, saw something of the commemorations of the D-Day landing 70 years ago uh, on on Friday, uh, celebrating uh, on that day the sacrificial bravery of those who fought and died to bring us peace and security. Uh, The media told us of the stories of the detailed planning that went into the landings, Uh, from the surveillance of the Normandy beaches down to the meteorologists telling the generals when the weather would be right to make that dangerous crossing. And of course, we heard stories of those perilous crossings from those who made them. Well, now, as we turn to the pages of Isaiah again this morning, we discover a nation that was celebrating. They also uh, knew about war Uh, Theirs uh, was a celebration that was going on in in Jerusalem because for the first time in a long time, they felt safe and secure. Uh, You'll recall the situation if you've been here over these uh, last weeks. The mighty Assyrian army had swept down from the north, destroying everything in their path, and Judah was next. And fearing destruction, they turned to make an alliance with Egypt. Egypt was a nation stronger than little Judah. And so Judah that believed with Egypt as their allies, they could stand against that ruthless invasion that was coming from the Assyrians and perhaps even defeat them. And so in these last weeks, we've seen the lengths that Judah went to to secure that alliance. The planning in chapter 29, verse 15, the dangerous journey they embarked upon in chapter 30, and now here in chapters 31 and 32, The deal has been done. The leaders of Judah have arrived in Egypt and they've made an alliance with Egypt. And so back home in Jerusalem, as news broke, there was great rejoicing. It's not hard to imagine the headlines on the 10 o'clock news. Judah, today, Judah's leaders signed a military agreement with Egypt. And on the screen, footage of the kings of Judah and Egypt sitting at a desk with their national flags behind them, all smiles for the cameras of the assembled media as they sat and signed the agreement. And so as they heard the news in Jerusalem, they celebrated. That's what we see at the end of our passage today. Now look with me at chapter 32 and verse 13. Chapter 32, verse 13, do you see the last line there? Isaiah describes Jerusalem as a city of revelry. They were up all night celebrating because they felt secure. That's the big word in verses 9 to 11. It's repeated three times. Verse 9, you daughters who feel secure. Verse 10, you who feel secure. Verse 11, you daughters who feel secure. What a great day it was for them. A nation that had feared being overrun by the enemy now felt safe. And so what a surprise to read how this section begins back in chapter 31 and verse 1. The Lord says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. See, while everyone was celebrating a terrific military decision, through his prophet Isaiah, the Lord said, woe. 
Now, this is the fifth woe in a series of six woes from chapter 28 down to chapter 33. And you'll remember the power of that word woe. It was a word of lament. You'd hear it if you went to a funeral. It's the cry of agony that mourners let out when they mourn the death of a loved one. And so the Lord is saying to Judah, making this alliance with Egypt is the death of you, verse one. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in their great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. See, there's the problem. They've put their trust in Egypt's military firepower. Now, I know horses and chariots don't sound very impressive for us, not when we think of modern warfare. But in today's language, in signing an agreement with Egypt, Judah had just secured an alliance with a nation that had a significant arsenal of tanks and aircraft carriers and nuclear submarines and strong and skilled military personnel. The problem is spelled out in verse 1. They had put their trust in Egypt's military strength. But end of verse 1, they did not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. There's the problem. They made their choice. The Lord had told them to trust him. He had assured them that he would save them from the Assyrians. But they would not trust him, but preferred to put their trust in Egypt instead. And please note that as they did that, as they transferred their trust, they rejected the Lord. Verse 1, they did not seek help from him. You cannot serve two masters. Now what we see of Judah, we see in ourselves too. For us, it's not the threat of the Assyrians, but we face plenty of threats just like them. We do live in a scary world. There are mighty, powerful forces that are way too strong for us. We hear of global terrorism and global warming and a global recession. And in their different ways, they all threaten to overrun us, to demolish us. As the people of God, we fear the threat of theological liberalism and a a moral reversal in this land that threatens the church. As individuals, we face the fears of ill health and death, and so we look for security. And while the Lord says, in all of these scary things, while the Lord says, trust me, honestly, if we're being frank with each other today, simply trusting him to deliver doesn't quite seem enough. Yeah, I'm a Christian, I do trust you, Lord, but I I just kind of feel I need to have something else as well. Isn't that how you feel? That's how I feel. At a very simple level, I see it in my prayer life as I head into a day that threatens to overwhelm me, and there's quite a few of them at the moment, a day that is so busy I'm not sure how I'll get through it all. I know the answer is to trust the Lord, but rather than spend good and unhurried time praying, casting myself upon the Lord for help, at best I say a few quick prayers and then I get on with all that has to be done. Sometimes I reckon I don't even have to pray and so I just get on with the day. Well, that seems to me to be the end of verse one. You do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from him. And if that's not bad enough, uh, we do what, what Judah did. We, we turn to trust something else to deliver us. Because simply trusting the Lord to help us through this scary world doesn't seem enough. 
So as we've considered these last weeks, we have swallowed the lie that money is where we find security. Again, hear me, I'm not talking now to the unbeliever, talking to Christians. We are trusting the Lord, that's why we're here this morning, but don't we turn to trust our money? We save up for a rainy day, we look ahead to the day when life storms come, when bad health hits, when we're frail and infirm, and having a bit of money in the bank makes us feel secure. But it's a false security. Ask people who have life-threatening or terminal illness. Money can't save us. And what's more, when we've turned to something else, this is not just, I'm not saying we should never have any savings. I'm saying when we've put our trust in something else, we've rejected the Lord. And so he says, woe, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And in the verses that follow, we see why it is so foolish to trust other things. And indeed, we see why we're so reluctant to turn from other things when we've invested so much in them. But we'll see that in a moment. First, why it's so foolish to trust in other things. Isaiah says here, nothing, nothing compares to the Lord. Look at the comparison that Isaiah gives to Judah in verse 3. The Egyptians are men and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. That is so obvious, isn't it? But it's great to read that and think, that's right. Whatever else I turn to is not God. It's just flesh and blood. It's just stuff. It's not the spirit. Good place to start when I'm starting to trust in something else. Other than the Lord, nothing else is God. And nothing can stand against the Lord. Verse 3. When the Lord stretches out his hand, he who helps will stumble. Now he's talking there about the Egyptians. The Egyptians have helped Judah in this alliance. But if the Lord stretches out his hand against the Egyptians, they will stumble. Do you see what he's saying to Judah? You've turned to something that simply cannot stand against the Lord. And then he goes on, verse 3, when the Lord stretches out his hand, he who helps will stumble, and he who who is helped will fall. If Judah is trusting Egypt, when Egypt falls, Judah will fall too. Both will perish together, he says in verse 3. Now there's a lesson we really should have learned these last years, in these years of recession and austerity. We've looked to money for help to bring us security, But when the financial markets collapse, all those who put their trust in the markets collapse with them. We don't seem to have learned the lesson though, do we? Very simply in verse 3, Isaiah is saying, anything else you put your trust in other than the Lord is not as powerful as the Lord. Nothing can stand against him. Put positively in verses 4 and 5, we read that the Lord is supremely powerful and wonderfully protective for his people. Verse four, this is what the Lord says to me. As a lion growls, a great lion over his prey, and though a whole band of shepherds is called together against him, he's not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. So the Lord Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights. The Lord, it says in verse five, will shield Jerusalem. That's the promise. See, in verse 4, Isaiah pictures God like a great lion 
a lion that's just caught something roaring over its prey. And he says, it isn't scared even if a whole band of shepherds tries to frighten it away. You just see these shepherds, shoo, shoo. The lion just sits there growling. And the point is, the Lord was not scared of the Assyrian army. He fears nothing that comes against his people. Isn't that a brilliant thing to hear? There are things in this world that seem terrifying. There are things in this world that are simply too big for you and me. There are things that we know will overwhelm us. 70 years ago, there was a force of evil sweeping across Europe that threatened to overwhelm and engulf this nation. But God isn't scared of that kind of power. It is powerful, but it doesn't scare God. Like a lion, he's not frightened by the shouts and clamors of others. There are things that threaten to overwhelm the church in this land. Truths that are clearly taught in the eternal word of God are being overturned by society and ignored by the powers that be in the synods of the church. Gender distinctives, the roles of men and women, the redefinition of marriage, these issues are being turned upside down and those of us who hold a biblical view are being undermined and sidelined. It seems as if the enemy is not just lined up on the borders threatening us, but that the enemy has come crashing into the sheep pen and he's causing havoc amongst the sheep. And in our frightened state, we might well be tempted to turn to all manner of solutions and political alliances to deal with the crisis. But what the Lord says to us here is a great encouragement. Verse 4, the Lord is like a great lion. He's not frightened even by a whole band of shepherds shouting loudly. Isn't that brilliant? He will protect his church, verse 5, like birds hovering overhead, The Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and rescue it. He shields and protects his people as he did at the Passover in the Exodus by by destroying the enemy. Now you see, if we believe verses four and five, if we believe this about our God, then we will never look to another for security. There is no more secure place in life than in the Lord. He's like a powerful lion. He protects like birds hovering overhead. So you see, it's foolish to turn to other things because nothing compares to the Lord. And so he says, return to the Lord. See verse six? Return to him you have so greatly revolted against. Return to the one that you've so revolted against. Isn't that remarkable? I can't quite get over how gracious and patient and kind the Lord is towards wayward children. We keep seeing it in the pages of Isaiah, don't we? It's very interesting. Sometimes people say to me, oh, the God of the Old Testament, he's so harsh and cruel. I don't think they've ever read the Old Testament. In these last weeks, we've seen Judah ignoring God's word, deliberately turning away from the word of the Lord. We've seen how their hearts have grown cold towards the Lord. We've seen them plotting and planning to walk away from the Lord. And last week, we saw the great lengths they went to, to walk from the Lord, to make an alliance with Egypt. And now here in chapter 31, as we see them arriving in Egypt and making this alliance with Egypt... So we see that verse 6 is no exaggeration. Judah really has revolted against the Lord. And so how gracious and patient and kind to hear this invitation, verse 6, return to him. 
And what the Lord said to Judah back then, he says to us today, as we turn away from the Lord, as our hearts wander to other things, when our hearts are captivated by other things, when we look to these other things to give us the security that we so need in this scary world, despite our faithlessness, hear this gracious invitation. Return to him. Return to him. Him whom you have so greatly revolted against. It's a wonderful invitation and I want to call on you to believe it. For there will be some here this morning who have been so rebellious. I mean, we're all rebellious all the time. But so rebellious, you have ignored God. Flagrantly, flagrantly ignored his word. You've walked away from him. Two other things. You have greatly revolted. And you think to yourself, I can't turn back to the Lord He won't have me back after all that I've done. And this says, yes, he will. For he is speaking here to a people who have greatly revolted against him. And he says, return. You may have ignored the Lord all your life, made him little more than a footnote in your life, even deliberately turned away from him. And here's the invitation, return to him. And why would you want to return to him? Well, we've already seen that he's more powerful than anyone else and that he promises to protect his people. And what we see then in the verses that follow sort of works that out further. Firstly, see that the things that we fear will be defeated, verses 8 and 9. Assyria will fall by a sword that is not of man. A sword not of mortals will devour them. They will flee before the sword and their young men will be put to forced labour. Assyria threatened to overrun Judah, to bring death and destruction to Judah. While the Assyrians were on their border, they lived under the shadow of death. But, verse 8, they were going to be destroyed. And they were going to be destroyed by a sword, not of mortals. In other words, it would be the Lord who would defeat Assyria. And the Lord will bring will deal with the shadow of death that is hanging over us as well. It's exactly what he has done in Christ. Jesus Christ died the death that we should die. He died under the curse of God, taking the curse of God so that we don't have to. And he rose victorious from the grave. Death has been defeated. And so the very thing that threatens us, the thing that stands on the borders of our life, all our life, casting a shadow over our life, the fear of death and destruction has been dealt with, done away with, defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only does he defeat the enemy, but he promises a place of complete security. Chapters 32, verses 1 to 8, speak of the sort of world we all want. And it's the world that God will bring about when Jesus returns to usher in his new creation. In this promised new world, verse 1, a king will reign in righteousness. Wouldn't that be brilliant? A king ruling over the world who is totally righteous. It is, of course, the Lord Jesus. It is speaking of the new heavenly Jerusalem. And under his rule, verse 1, will be rulers who rule with justice, which is exactly what we want, certainly what I want. A righteous king who will lead us making good and right decisions and one who has rulers ruling under him with justice where all wrongs are put right. A world where all rulers can be trusted to bring about justice. Isn't that a wonderful thought? 
John Oswald says of this verse, uh, in the coming era, leaders will no longer be predators from whom the people need to seek relief. Rather, the leaders themselves will be sources of protection and support, and support as they ought to be. That's the promise here. I, I get the impression that as a, I'm, I'm no I'm no politician, don't want to be. But I get the impression that as a nation, we are fed up with our leaders feathering our own nests, pushing their own agendas, blinded by their own interests. So what a great thought of a future world where, verse 3, leaders will not be blinded by their own sin and prejudice, but will be able to see clearly and listen to others. That's the world we want, isn't it? Verses 4 to, eight, uh, 4 to 8 explain more of that kind of leadership. Verse 8 sums it up. This is the world we want, where the noble man makes noble plans and by noble deeds he stands. So you see what's going on in this section uh, from the end of chapter 31 into 32. It's the, the world the Lord promises us. He'll defeat his enemies and he'll usher in a glorious new world in the heavenly new creation. That's the promise, it's a great promise. And when I think about it, whenever I think about it, I can't understand why everyone wouldn't want it. I really don't understand why people don't want to know the Lord Jesus Christ and be sure of eternity with him. I just don't get it. But then there are little glimpses in God's word that kind of help me to understand why people don't turn to this. You see, in the verses that follow, and as we draw to a close now, we see why many are reluctant to embrace this great promise. See, as we've seen already in this last section from verse 9, the people of Jerusalem were celebrating the alliance that they'd made with Egypt. For the first time in a long time, they felt secure. Now, I reckon that's how it is in this part of the world, here in Forward. Look, I don't think everyone who lives around here is sorted. People in this wealthy and prosperous part of this country have all, all the struggles everyone else has. But, but do you think this is right? Do you think we do tend to think that what we have here will give us what we want? You know, money and real estate, good jobs. I think, even though we don't think we've got everything, we do think that's where security lies. So even if we don't feel that we're sorted, even if we don't think we have everything now, we do think that, 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 that we're basically in the right area. We're in the right ballpark. This is where we're going to find what we want. And then add to that, when you think about all the, all the time and effort and, uh, that we've invested in, you know, years of, of getting to where we are so that we can have all this stuff. When we've given so much of our life to this other thing, we're reluctant to let it go because, well, this is where I get security, isn't it? That's what's going on with these people. They've gone to great lengths to get to Egypt and now they've got it, they feel secure. I don't suppose for one minute they thought everything was sorted, but they felt secure and they didn't want to give it up. But verse 10, in little more than a year, you, will, you who feel secure will tremble. The grape harvest will fail and the harvest of fruit will not come. In little more than a year. Now that's how it was for them. It's just a little time. You feel so secure, but it's not going to last long. 
It won't be long before all that sense of security is gone. This life passes by so quickly. I'm 52 this year, 52. Do you know that feeling? Do you look in the mirror and wonder who's looking back at you? I think to myself all the time, where has time gone? I've been here in forward eight and a half years. It's gone like a flash for me. I know for you sometimes it feels like eternity. But it's gone like a flash. The years have gone by so quickly. And so without putting too fine a point on it, in no time at all, I will be face to face with God. In no time at all. And if I put my security in money and real estate, how will those things help me then? But of course, if I have put all my, if I've invested everything in those other things, I'm very reluctant to move away from them. So Isaiah speaks to a complacent people, you see it there in verse 9, a people who've found their security in Egypt. And at the time, with Egypt, they felt secure, but it was short-sighted. And so he says to them, you should be repenting, verse 11. Tremble, you complacent women. Shudder, you daughters who feel secure. Strip off your clothes. Put sackcloth round your waists. Sackcloth and ashes, the the sign of, of repentance. Verse 12, beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vines, and for the land of my people, a land overgrown with thorns and briars. Yes, mourn for all houses of merriment and for this city of revelry. You are having a ball at the moment. Merriment and revelry. You should be repenting. They shouldn't be rejoicing in their alliance with Egypt. They should be repenting of it, for it won't keep them secure. Quite the opposite. It will be the death of them. Woe to you. They should be repenting, returning to the Lord, for he does promise security, everlasting security. That's really what this whole thing is about. Look at verse 18. Again, looking ahead to the final day, my people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Isn't that what we all want? Peace, security, and rest. That's what we're looking for. That's why Judah turned from the Lord to Egypt to find those things, peace, security, and rest. That's actually why people turn from the Lord to other things today. Well, all sorts of reasons, but not least of all, to find peace, security and rest from the dangers of this world. But do you see, it's a foolish decision because it won't last. Only the Lord can give us lasting peace, security and rest. This week, we've been rightly remembering those who died to bring us freedom and secure a bright future for us. Well, look in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have one who died for us to bring us peace, security and rest for eternity. So whether you're far from him or like me, find your heart drifting from him most days, certainly most weeks, return to him. Even if you have greatly revolted against him, return to him. For he is a powerful God, like a lion. He protects like a bird, hovering overhead and he can give us what we really need forever peace security and rest let's pray together
Now, Father, we've uh, sung earlier in our meeting together uh, words from this very book, the book of Isaiah, speaking of your greatness, that who like you has held the oceans in his hands, who's numbered every grain of sand. We've sung of your power as we've sung kings and nations tremble at your voice. You are more powerful than all things. And yet we keep thinking other things might well do the job. And so we ask your forgiveness. And we repeat the words we've sung. Our one request this morning, our only aim, is that you would reign in, in me and us again. Reign in us, Lord. May we turn afresh to you today and ensure that you are our Lord, our source of strength, the one in whom we are looking to, to find the very things we need, the security we long for. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.